when I was a, a kid, um, my mom uh, loved to read us bedtime stories. And my mom, she was a great lover of books. She has like collections of lots of different novels, stories, uh, mysteries. And she was kind of like, at a young age, trying to instill this love of reading uh, to my brother and I. Um, but the reality was that I was more interested in running around the house playing soccer uh, than reading any books. And, but my, that didn't stop my mom from trying. And so she would always read like a bedtime story uh, at night. And she would take the book and she would, you know, kind of get prepared. She would, with my brother, I, I'd be in the bed. We would all be kind of seated in. And like maybe my mom would read for about, I don't know, 30 seconds. And then all of a sudden, I would just go up to my mom, take my hands, and just close the book and said, Mom, I want to go to bed. <laughs> but one book that I think my mom... Um, kind of instilled in me a book that I read for the first time was The Hobbit. And I became a great lover of The Lord of the Rings. And even the movies were something that, when I was such a young kid, like really stirred my imagination. And I think nowadays we can kind of look back at the Lord of the Rings trilogy that became the great films that they are, and we can kind of all kind of say at this point that they're like, they're like masterpieces. They're like these great pieces of art. Um, and they sort of communicate so many different themes, and I think that are still extremely relevant uh, to our world today. What is the essence of The Lord of the Rings? What is it all about? You have this hobbit, this tiny little man, and he's given on this great quest. He's celebrating his uncle's uh, birthday, uh, Bilbo Baggins, and Bilbo Baggins is in possession of this mysterious ring, this ring of power. And Frodo has no idea about this ring, doesn't really know much about it, doesn't, doesn't have a clue. But one way or another, when Bilbo Baggins leaves the Shire, Frodo inherits the ring and doesn't know what to do with it. And very his first reaction is that he brings it to Gandalf. And of course, Gandalf is like this wise sage, this great figure. And he tells, uh, Gandalf kind of explains to him that he thinks that this is the ring of power. This is the ring of Sauron, the Dark Lord. And I think as any reasonable hobbit would do, he wants to get rid of it. Like, you take it, Gandalf. I don't want anything to do with the ring. And Gandalf's like, no, Frodo. I can't take the ring. Because if I do, I will succumb to its power. And so Frodo goes on this great quest to Rivendell. He kind of, Gandalf kind of convinces Frodo and Sam to kind of go with him to just at least take him to Rivendell. At least the least you can do is take this dangerous ring uh, to where it can be safe with the elves. And mission accomplished. Frodo takes the ring. He gets to uh, Rivendell, but like barely. I mean, 90% of the time, they're absolutely lost. They have no idea where they're going. They, and Frodo actually has like a near-death experience. So he gets all the way to Rivendell, and it's like he barely, barely survives. Uh, just by just like by almost no margin whatsoever, and of course you think Frodo's like okay, mission accomplished. I'm done. I did what I had to do. I can now go back to my comfortable little shire, make my little campfire by the inside the house. You know, have a little pint of beer and like spend the rest of my days not worrying about anything else. But before Frodo can leave, um, Elrond, the elf, 
gathers all the tribes of Middle-earth to summon this council of what to do with the ring and what to do with Sauron. And Frodo's like, okay, I'll stick around for the council. I'll stick around for uh, this debate. And so he goes to the council, and you have all these great warriors. You have, uh, you have Aragorn, you have Boromir, you have uh, Gimli, you have Legolas, all these great archers, warriors, uh, just like the most powerful men of Middle-earth. And they all kind of gather in this council. And right away, they see this ring. And the very first thing they wanted, they, they're already tempted. The ring is already corrupting the council itself. Boromir's like, why don't we use the ring for ourselves? Why don't we use this power and use it against Sauron and his, and his armies? But of course, Aragorn and Gandalf are like, no, we can't do that because once we use the ring for ourselves, we will be corrupted, we will be destroyed. And you see that as Frodo is in this meeting, as he's seeing that all these great men are beginning to fight with one another, clash with one another, almost at each other's throats. He sees that these divisions are so embedded in these men. And he finally realizes what he has to do. He can't go back to the Shire. He can't go back home. And this little hobbit, who's not a warrior, he's not a wizard, he has no great strength or skills, he gets up and he says, I will take the ring to Mordor. And he has to say it three times because nobody's listening to him. But eventually, he gets the entire council to agree. Frodo will take the ring to Mordor. And they form this great fellowship, this great group of friends to take the ring to Mordor and have it destroyed once and for all. Why must the ring be destroyed? Why must this powerful item, this powerful thing, have to be getting rid of? Why isn't Boromir correct? Why can't they just use the ring for themselves? Because what does the ring do? What is the ring's power? It makes one invisible. I think that's a powerful symbol of our day today. We are tempted to become invisible ourselves. Think of what is the most prevalent item that we hold in our pockets today. What is the one thing that we cannot live without? Like Gollum, we say, this is my precious. It's the cell phone. It's this thing that we carry on day in, day out. How often do we imagine ourselves where we are in a room and you, you catch yourself and you see all your, with all your friends at a dinner table or at a home and you can almost like take a video camera and record yourself and you would see that everybody is on this little device, so absorbed in this one thing, not noticing who's around, not even having a conversation. We're like invisible to one another. Or perhaps going on the internet, that we can just sort of take any email account, write a fake username, and then we can just post all these different things on the internet, saying things that we would never say in public, never even dare to imagine to say to someone face to face. But because we have this invisibility, because that we can hide behind a screen, that we can just do whatever we want and say whatever we want without any consequences. 
It's this reality that we live today that we, all of us are some way tempted to become invisible to other people. But that's not the only thing that's destroying the communion that we're called to. That's not the only thing that's destroying the unity that we're called to love one another. We're also becoming invisible to ourselves. I think the best example of this is The Breakfast Club uh, from the 1980s. I'm not sure if you guys know the film or not. Uh, but you have these group of uh, teenagers, and they get detention. And you have, like, the cool girl. You have, um, like, the, the rebel, the jock. You've got the quiet girl. And they're all placed in this, like, detention center. And more or less, they're not friends whatsoever. They don't talk to each other. They're, like, completely, like, would never even hang out with one another outside of this one day. And you can kind of see that all of these different students are taking on some kind of persona, right? Like, the cool girl has to be the cool girl. The jock has to be the jock. The quiet girl has to be the quiet girl. The nerd has to be the nerd. And we see that all these teenagers are, like, believing these lies that I have to act a certain way, dress a certain way, say the right things, go to the right events, post the right images on Instagram or Facebook. We develop these personas, these cliques, these images that we feel as though we have to live up to. But what happens? We develop an image or persona that's not really who we are. It's not really what we are. But because we, still fall, we, because we have this sense of desire for community, this desire to be with one another, that we feel as though we have to play by these social norms, that we have to play by these rules, that if I'm the jock, I have to be the funny guy, or I, if I'm the cool girl, I can't talk to so-and-so, or if I'm like the nerd, then I have to get straight A's, and if I don't get straight A's, then I'm not going to be like, accepted by others. We play by all these different norms that in some ways lead to greater isolation. And in some ways, we allow these different personas to make us invisible. And we don't know what to do. But I think even though that we may be invisible to other people, invisible to ourselves, I think the greatest danger today is that we are becoming invisible to God. Think about it. Outside of these events, outside of Sunday, when we walk down the streets of Long Beach or Point Lookout or Manhattan or Queens or whatever, most of us live as though we're hiding from God. We're not living as though Jesus is a friend to us, with us every step of the, every, every day. We live as though God doesn't exist, and we make ourselves invisible before him. We look at the world, and we wonder, why should we be surprised? Why sin abounds? Think about your own personal life and the sins that you struggle with the most. How often those sins were committed in the dark, when committed when you were somewhat invisible to other people. This is why confession can be so hard for people, why we're so afraid to confess these deep personal things about ourselves, because we're so afraid of bringing these things to the light, 
of making ourselves visible to Him. I think this is precisely the reason why we feel more alone than ever before. I was reading uh, statistics from the Harvard uh, website, and it said that about since the pandemic, 36 people say they feel lonely frequently or almost all the time. And the statistics for people the age of 18 to 25 is almost 61%. We live in a world that we're becoming more and more disconnected with other people, disconnected from ourselves, and disconnected from God. All of us, in some way or another, have given in to the temptation of wearing the ring, believing that it will give us some sort of longing, some sort of power. But in reality, it makes us feel more isolated and more alone than ever before. We have this deep sense of alienation. It's that experience when we walk into a crowded room, no matter how many people are around us, we still feel invisible to others, to ourselves, and to God. So what's the answer? What's going to be the cure of bring, escaping the sense of isolation that we feel in the world today? And I think the answer to invisibility is faith. When Frodo is at that council, from the very beginning, it's complete disaster. But when Frodo decides to take the ring, when he decides to accept the quest, you must have think that all these great men must have looked at Frodo and think to themselves, what on earth are we doing? Why on earth are we putting our trust in this little hobbit, who again, was not a wizard, not a warrior, not anything. But at some point, they're like, we're going to make this act of faith. We're going to trust Frodo. We're going to have his back. We're going to go to mortar with him to the very end. Because reality is that all of us have to make, at some point in our life, an act of faith. All of us have to put some faith beyond ourselves. And it's this precise moment when these men who were ready to cut each other's throats, saying, no, we're not going to fight among ourselves. We're not going to be divided. We will unite ourselves. We will put our faith in Frodo. And it's precisely this act of faith that forms a fellowship. It's precisely this moment where they say to Frodo, Frodo, we are your friends. And it's precisely this what gives Frodo the courage, the, the, the power to have faith in himself, to take the ring where it has to go, into the mountain of doom. Frodo is not strong. But it's precisely having this act of faith that he's able to take on this great quest. I think the perfect image that I can think of this is like a married couple. Think of those, all of you here who, who took your vows all those many years ago. The very first time you met your significant other, they were an absolute stranger. You didn't know anything about them. You didn't know their likes or dislikes. You didn't know if this relation would work out or not work out. You had all these mysteries. In some ways, whenever we meet a stranger, we're always in some way invisible to the other person. But it's precisely when, in some ways, at some moment in a relationship, 
you make that act of faith. You make that act of trust. Think of your wedding day. That even though you've known each other for a few years, even though you, you've kind of dated and you've sort of like know your likes and dislikes, you've, you figure out what your hobbies, what you don't like, you've kind of, you've, you've kind of like, you've, you searched, you, you've done your work, you've done your homework, you, you kind of know this person, you kind of think to yourself, okay, I can make this sacrifice. But we don't know what the future holds in store. You don't know what life may throw at you. And I think that wedding day is like, it's kind of scary when you think about it. Because you look at this other person and you're completely surrendering your entire life to him or her. You're saying to the other person that I will be with you in good times or in bad, in sickness or in health, in the Shire or in Mordor. I'll be with you every step of the way. In the beginning, you were invisible. But as that marriage deepens, as you begin to live out those vows after one year, five years, 10 years, 25 years, after all the trials that you endured, all the screaming matches, all the difficulties, all the times on vacations in Italy, all the good and the bad, I think the purpose of that, those vows that you made is that you reached a point in your life where you see this other person who you've loved for 20 years, for 30 years, for 40 years, and that love has deepened in such a deep and profound way that you feel seen, that you're known, that you're loved. You're no longer invisible to this person, but rather completely visible, completely known, and despite all of that, you accept each other. That's true in marriage. How true it is with God. When we make that act of faith, to trust him, to know him, to love him, God is asking all of you, day in and day out, do you have faith in me? And what I mean by faith is not like a blind trust. It's not like believing without any evidence or like ignoring reason or, or just like kind of like just superficial sort of like wishy-washy kind of faith. What I mean by the word faith, I mean, do you trust him? Are you ready to surrender to him as you would to a spouse? Every day God is asking you, do you trust me? Will you walk the journey of faith? Will you go all the way? You trust me today, but will you trust me tomorrow and the years to come? Because precisely when we make that act of faith, when we surrender our life to God, it's precisely that love deepens where we have nothing to hide from him. There's no, there's no sin too great for him. No wound too deep for him. Nothing can prevent him from allowing his love to touch our very bones, to touch our hearts. And that's precisely when we walk this journey of faith, when we allow that love to deepen, 
we feel this profound sense of communion with him. And it's like a fire. It's like a fire that consumes our very hearts that we can't just help but begin to love other people and to draw other people to him. Because when we've been touched by the, by the Lord, when we've been touched by this divine spark, is this sense of unity that we feel with him. Then we're all then called out to make friends of Jesus in every single direction, to allow that love to spread in every, every way. Because God is not satisfied with 99 sheep. He wants 100. God is not satisfied with empty seats at the wedding banquet. He wants it completely full. God is not satisfied with empty pews in the church. He wants them filled because he wants all of us to experience this deep, profound love that he's ready to give to us. But too often in our life, we prefer to hide, to be invisible, to put on the ring because we're afraid to take that step, that journey of faith. All of us are called to an adventure in life. But all of us have to make that adventure to be guided by faith. And this adventure is not to foreign lands, not to go to some far distant Nile. The adventure we're called to is to foreign hearts. It's to those who are around us. It's the person who's right next to us. The adventure is learning to take off the ring of invisibility, to look at another person who has the same struggles, the same fears, the same anxieties, the same anxieties as you do, and to look at that person and say, I'm here, I'm with you, I see you. Because that's all we want. We want to be seen, we want to be loved. We're called to see the person as God sees them, to see them and to love them as he loves them. This is the great adventure. This is the quest that we're called to follow all the way to the end. And the reality is, is that I think most of us will struggle in that journey to love God and to love neighbor. And even in my own life, I found that same temptation of wanting to be invisible. I remember when I was in college and I was beginning to really kind of take that act of faith, really beginning to take my faith life seriously. But at the same time, as I was going deeper in my faith, I was also feeling this profound call to the priesthood, to serve him in his church, to build this greater communion of faith that he was calling me to. And the reality was that I was very scared because, look, married life, work life, these I can kind of see. I know what married life looks like. I've seen, I've seen my own family, I've seen my friends' families. I know what work is like, I've seen other people work and I can kind of see where that goes and I can see some sense of fulfillment. I can see myself just living a simple nine to five job and just sort of cruising along through life and not having to ruffle any feathers or, or, or like step on anyone's toes and just live this sort of quiet life. What I kind of wanted was to have my own shire and just sort of be comfortable in that shire and never worry about having to leave those doors. But there's this great quote from the Lord of the Rings where I kind of resonated with when I was kind of struggling with my vocation to the priesthood. And this is what Frodo said. I wish the ring had never come to me. 
I wish none of this had happened. But Gandalf says, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. I don't know what the church is going to look like 50 years down the line. I don't know what our nation is going to look like 50 years down the line. I don't know what, what society will be. I don't know what these events and how these things play out in the future. And there, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of things to be scared about. But I had this great image that a priest told me. He was the first person actually I ever told that I was thinking about priesthood. I said to him at, at a confession, and he was like, kind of like, well, come to me afterwards, and we'll, we'll have a, a longer discussion. And I was like, ah. You know, I was already, at that point, I was already embarrassed that I even told him that I was thinking about priesthood, and I really didn't want to do it. Um, but for whatever reason or not, I, um, it was almost like, a, yeah, like that itch on your back, and you just like, I, I knew I had to go see him. I knew I had to talk to him. And I remember it was like there was a campfire in the night, and it was completely dark. And I remember I, I, uh, I saw the priest, and I kind of tapped him on the shoulder, and I said, you know, can we, can we continue that conversation that we had at confession? And he was like, sure. And I remember we went down um, a little way from the crowd, and I don't remember all, everything that was said, but there's one thing I remember very vividly, and this is what he said to me. Life is like walking through a dark road. There's no street lights, and all we see is darkness in front of us. And the only thing that God gives to us is this lamp, this little light. And all we can see in front of us are what's our two steps in front. And all that God asks of us in every present moment is just to take the next step. I had no idea what priesthood would lead me to. And I still don't have any idea what priesthood would lead me to. But I know this. I know that now more than ever, we need God. We need communion. We need love. And if maybe my role in this great mystery, our role as a church, is just simply to be another Christ in our little way, in our little path, to be that little lamp to those around us, we don't know how that plays out. We don't know how the mystery of God reveals his grace even in the darkest of times. And I remember so often I would pray before the blessed sacrament and I would ask God, like, God, I, I don't feel worthy of this. I can't do this. I can't follow this vocation. I can't follow this path. I'm not really capable of evangelization and, and bringing the gospel to this very antagonistic culture. I can't do this. I can't, I can't, I can't. And every single time I would pray before the sacrament, before the Eucharist, God was telling me, do you trust me? Will you trust me? Take the step. I said yes, because I believe Christ is truly present in the Eucharist. And so often in my life, when I felt lonely, when I felt isolated, when I myself felt invisible, it was when I went to the Eucharist where I felt that sense of peace, of not being alone, 
of being seen and being loved. It's this, this blessed sacrament where I've experienced the deepest, profoundest sense of communion, which I think is the remedy today. Fall in love with the Eucharist. Find the meaning and purpose of your life, of how God's calling you to trust him in this day and age. The Eucharist is the remedy for the lonely heart, is the means of finding communion with God, with our enemies and neighbors. And when we take the adventure of faith to the very end and allow the communion of love to deepen, we're no longer invisible, but seen. No longer slaves to the ring, but free men. J.R.L. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, wrote this profound quote on the Eucharist to his son. And this is what he wrote. Out of the darkness of my life, so much frustrated, I put before you the one great thing to love on earth, the blessed sacrament. There you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves on earth. And more than that, death. By the divine paradox, that which ends life and demands the surrender of all, and yet by the taste or the foretaste of which alone can what you seek in your earthly relationships, love, faithfulness, joy, be maintained or take on that complexion of reality, of eternal endurance, which every man's heart desires. The only cure for fainting faith is communion. Have faith. Take the step. Go on the adventure. And let's build a fellowship of hearts in communion with Jesus Christ.